Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to John, once again to the 17th chapter where this morning we are going to look together at the closing verses, verse 24 through 26. John 17, 24 through 26, and you can find that passage on the very bottom of page 1062 in your pew Bibles. This morning we are going to be concluding our look together at this high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would remind you that we have, of course, only really just begun to sort of scratch the surface of the depths and the riches that are to be found here in this prayer for the people of God. There is much here that brings to mind the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139, verse 6, when he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. I think you understand why I would say that. There is a depth of majesty here that just escapes our ability to fully realize it, to fully come to grips with. And yet there is much here that we can not only clearly understand, but that I would say we can take tremendous comfort from. We can find our faith nourished and most certainly strengthened by. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, lifted up His church before the Father in prayer. And it's not just these disciples present in the immediate context that are being addressed here, but it is in fact all of the elect throughout the ages until Jesus comes again. All of those who have embraced the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ by God-given faith are represented here. As Jesus goes before the Father praying for those four specific things that we have been talking about together for several weeks for his bride, the church. And we take tremendous comfort from these petitions offered by Jesus, knowing that he and the Father are one, that the two of them, that they exist in perfect unity, that the prayers of the Son to the Father cannot. And consequentially, will not ever fail. What comfort comfort there is for us here in that one incredible fact alone. Then we begin to look at the specific petitions themselves here a little bit closer. And we see that truly, they encompass everything that you and I could ever truly need in this life. As well as everything we would need in the life to come. And he prays all of it so that we may, in his words, have the joy of Jesus Christ fulfilled in us. All that we could ever need is covered here in this singular prayer of Jesus. He prays that we as his people would be preserved amid this wicked world. And we know that if we truly belong to him, that no matter what comes our way, that we will be kept. We will be preserved because Jesus Christ himself has prayed that it would be so. 
We know that his prayers do not fail. And he, of course, prays that we will be sanctified. That we would continue to grow in grace and in strength. That we would become more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ in this life. That we would ultimately see our complete sanctification when we are resurrected and made perfect for the glory of heaven when we will be with him. He prays that his church would be unified in him. That in Jesus Christ we would have true unity in him. Unity with one another in Christ, albeit imperfectly, until the day when he comes again. And the sin that so easily ensnares us in this life is done away with. We gather around his throne, lifting our voices as one in the glory and the splendor and the majesty of heaven. Beloved, in all these petitions, we recognize the tension that exists between the now, that is the realization of these things as they exist right now, imperfectly, while we walk around in these flawed, corrupt prison houses of flesh, and the not yet, the future, When that corruption, the corruption of our sin, will finally be taken away and we will see the full culmination of all of these things. All these first three petitions offer to us strength and comfort as we struggle through this difficult life here in this fallen world as we see glimpses of our preservation and our sanctification and our unity here and now even as we await their glorious culmination and time that is yet to come. This fourth petition is like the first three in this regard. We see the glory of Jesus Christ, albeit imperfectly now, as he reveals himself to us in the pages of sacred scripture. And yet we also look forward to that time when we will see Jesus face to face without the cloud of sin, which so often obscures our view now, when we will be with him where he is and we will see him as he prayed, arrayed with glory, the glory that was his before the foundation of the world, the glory given him by the Father, born out of a deep, deep love of the Father for the Son, the glory that Jesus Christ willingly laid aside in his humility coming to this earth in flesh. And he did it all to satisfy the perfect righteous standard of the law as a man without sin for us. He came to endure the penalty earned by us because of our own constant law breaking. He came to bear in his physical body the horrific penalty of the law, the wrath of Almighty God being poured out upon him, endured in the power of his deity, also that he could purchase wretches like us. We contemplate it. And again, we're left to say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high to attain to. Who can even begin to fathom this kind of love? Yet Jesus closes this prayer with this climactic ending, which really should give us pause this morning as we consider the unfathomable glory that awaits us 
when we are together with him in the full presence of his glory without the weight of this corruptible and corrupted flesh. This morning, I would like to look at this wonderful ending of this intercessory prayer of our great advocate in heaven, our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and point out to you just a couple of things that I see here that I hope and I trust will be a tremendous comfort to all of us this morning and a wonderful encouragement on the way as we pass through our own difficult pilgrimages in this life. So I'd like you to follow along with me in your Bibles as I read now John chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. Jesus, praying to the Father, says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have each and every Lord's Day to come and to sit under the preaching of your word. And so we pray, Father, that your spirit would quiet our hearts and our minds this morning, that you would take away those things that distract us, that we might give our full and undivided attention to your word so that hearing your word, we might be transformed by that word for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that I think we notice here, sort of just standing out in the closing of this prayer, is that Jesus once again petitions the Father on our behalf. He says, Father, I desire that. He looks once again to his Father for us, for our benefit, even as he is about to suffer and die because of us. Jesus is here petitioning for far more than just what we need immediately in this life. He's going before the Father and he's asking for that glorious, that ultimate blessing. The blessing of all blessings to come to all of the elect. And that is that we would receive through him our heavenly inheritance. We need to see something here. Jesus is not pleading for our wages here. He's not asking that we would be given our due for faithfully withstanding this wicked world and all of its hatred for God, but he's saying that it is his desire. It could also be translated as it is his will that all of those who were promised to him by the Father would join him in his heavenly abode where they will see him as he truly is, as he has existed, from the foundations of the world. Beloved, he is asking for us to receive 
the heir's portion. That is, the child's portion. And not simply for the wages of the servant. We have to see it. There is a vast difference between the wages due a servant and an inheritance. And we simply cannot afford to confuse those two things in the Christian life. Beloved, I'm asking you this morning, do you understand the difference? Truly, the beautiful thing about faith, faith by which we embrace the glorious truth about Jesus, is that it is itself the gift of Almighty God to His sons and daughters in Christ. We receive by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone because of God's grace alone, not the wages of the servant, but the inheritance of an heir. Beloved, I want to tell you so much of what passes itself off as the church today has misunderstood this. You know, I can remember very early on in my Christian walk, a, a well-meaning older man in the church that I was in, seeing that I was sort of wrestling, having some internal issues with uh, some of the uh, ideas that we were teaching surrounding biblical faith. And I can remember him sitting me down and saying, Steve, really, you just need to relax. You need to rest knowing that faith could best be summarized quite simply as the fear of punishment and the hope of reward. Beloved, I trust you've heard that definition of faith before. I can remember thinking at the time, are you kidding me? What have I missed? That's supposed to make me relax? That's supposed to put me at ease? That's going to bring me rest? If my faith consists of my doing something being driven only by the fear of punishment and the hope of some future reward, then I happen to know that I'm doomed. Because quite frankly, it's not enough. I know my own heart too well. Is that really all there is to faith? Being scared into action? Being hopeful of some distant reward? That now I will behave myself because of my fear and my holding out for some kind of heavenly reward that I cannot yet touch and see and feel? Maybe you've heard this before. Perhaps even this morning you're thinking, well, I don't know, Steve, that doesn't sound like too terrible of a definition of faith to me. But I want to tell you to me, I had had enough of a reference point in my own life to know that my fears and my hopes never really were great motivators that ever led me to stellar or perfect results, which is what I saw the Bible demanding. I can tell you without a doubt that I grew up very much afraid to cross my own father, and I wanted little else in this life more than I wanted his approval. I've talked to my dad about my dad to you guys plenty. You know that my dad was a, a no-nonsense kind of guy. He was a guy that had very little tolerance for some of the trouble that I routinely caused and found myself in the middle of. 
It wasn't just me, even my friends who never really had to witness or experience the wrath of my dad. They knew enough when they were at my house to mind their P's and Q's. Even the most disrespectful of my friends would somehow immediately become respectful when they were in the presence of my father. I feared my father. Rightfully so. I hoped and I longed for his approval in my life. I wanted it like I wanted nothing else. But do you know something? Even though I was rightly afraid of my father, even though I desired his approval more than the riches of this world, I still routinely made very poor decisions that landed me smack in the middle of his wrath, that landed me in the middle of his disappointment, that provoked the shaking of his head, placing me even further away from that blessed approval. My point is this, fear and hope may have made me think things over, It undoubtedly kept me from just rushing headlong into trouble without any thought for the consequences. But it did not render me anything even close to perfect in my own conduct by any stretch of the imagination. And beloved, I hope you can see and you can begin to understand the parallel here. We know that we are saved by faith, that through faith we embrace the perfect work of Jesus Christ and we receive that bulletproof covering of His perfect righteousness, that even that work of faith in my heart is the work of Almighty God. It's not my due. It's not the wages of the servant from the hand of the Master. The Bible tells us that faith, saving faith, is the gift of God to us through which we gain that certain knowledge and hearty trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the only definition that will bring us rest. Read the Heidelberg question and answer 21 if you want to find a proper definition for faith that saves. And Jesus is here talking about our future reward, not as something that we can somehow attain to someday through our fear and hope, but as something that is ours now. Because of our union with him by faith, we have been adopted as the true children of our Heavenly Father. We are the declared sons and daughters of the Most High God. And as the sons and daughters of God We are his heirs. Do you believe that this morning? That you are the heirs of God in every eternal blessing in Jesus Christ? The heavenly inheritance that Jesus desires or that he wills here, where we are not only with him, but where we will see him for exactly who he is and we will rightly fall on our faces and worship him through tears of joy. It is the culmination of the wonderful promise of Almighty God. And because the Son, who is one with the Father, who is loved by the Father, because he has asked, You and I can know with absolute certainty, with rock-solid surety, that it will be. 
It is as sure as our preservation, as sure as our sanctification, as sure as our unity in Jesus Christ are. Beloved, do you see that here? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope that you see it. Because truly, this is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it were up to us to earn these wages, we would have given up immediately upon correctly even hearing the holy demands of the law of God. If this future glory in the presence of Jesus depended upon our ability to be perfect, then of course we would all be sunk. We would all be sunk. We would all be doomed. But Jesus fills these disciples with comfort. He fills his church with comfort. As he goes before the Father and he asks for what is ours because of him. Because of his work for us. Not because of us. Not because of what we have merited, but because of him. Because of what he has merited for us. Look, he reiterates it in verse 25. He makes it even more clear. He again addresses the first person of the glorious Godhead, which we know exists in Trinity. And he says, Father, O righteous Father. He adds to his address that word righteous. Jesus is asking here for what is his due. It's his due. He's speaking with the authority of the God-man, God incarnate, the authority given to him by the Father, and he's asking for what is his right, his due, because of his purchase in the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son. If you have never read the Puritan Thomas Manton, I would highly recommend him to you, especially on this 17th chapter of John. His sermons on the high priestly prayer are available for free online. And I want to tell you, they are rich and deep. I love Thomas Manton on this eternal covenant here. Listen to what he says in his sermon on this text. Manton says, Thus we understand the O righteous Father here to have a double force. First, God is not only merciful, but he is also just in glorifying the elect. His grace reigns through righteousness, Romans 5.21. It expressed the Savior's confidence in the justice of the Father that he would do all things well. He was asking for what he was entitled to according to the stipulation of the eternal covenant. Justice required that his request should be granted. Beloved, do you understand the weight of what he's saying? Again, we rejoice to to see just how firm the foundation of our hope truly is. Jesus then again addresses the heart of our hope, the reason that the gospel is called good news. He says, the world has not known you. The gospel has gone forth into the world through the very lips of the Son of God, the promised one himself. 
Jesus had come and he had started the separation of the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. He told all of those who were gathered routinely around him in those days that the only way to the Father was through the Son. And the separation began as those who heard it and hated it walked away while the elect of God recognized the voice of their master and listened to his words as if they were wells of water for those who were dying of thirst. They were the bread of heaven, true food for starving men, women, and children. The world heard the gospel, and those who belonged to the world said, no thanks. But then Jesus says, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Again, the glory of the gospel message is that it is through Jesus Christ that we know and are reconciled by the Father, to the Father. It's because of Him, the very promise of Almighty God, that our hope is sure, that we so often sing about in one of my favorite hymns. Right? In Jesus, we know that we have an anchor that always holds. You know how much I love that hymn based on how often I pick it in our service. I want to tell you, those words are forever ringing in my ears. I think it might be my favorite hymn of all time. I I was unfamiliar with that hymn until I came to this church many years ago. But now it rings in my ears and the glorious truth is brought into the light that they point to in the Word of God. It's forever filling me with joy. It's forever comforting. Though the angry surges roll on my tempest-driven soul, I am peaceful, for I know, wildly though the winds may blow, I have an anchor safe and sure that evermore can endure. And it holds, my anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bark so small and frail, by His grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. I could go on and on. I won't go through the entire hymn, but I want to tell you that each stanza gets better and better and then it it, it ends, it culminates with that fourth verse. Troubles almost whelm the soul. Grief, like billows, o'er me roll. Tempters seek to lure astray. Storms obscure the light of day. But in Christ, I can be bold because I have an anchor. That shall hold. Beloved, do you understand why it is such good news that our hope, our trust, is entirely in Jesus Christ and in nothing else? He is the only foundation that cannot be shaken or uprooted. Jesus does not say to the Father, I have known you in these whom I told you about, they have known you too. No, he says, I have known you, and these believe, they know by faith that you have sent me. They're mine. It is in Christ that our future is sure and in nothing else. And we have to see that in this prayer. It's what makes his mediation on our behalf so precious to us. It's the only reason that we must sing. It's 
the real motivation that drives us towards anything akin to obedience on this side of the glory of heaven. It is the very thing that fills our hearts with gratitude this morning and every day of our lives because our hope is in Jesus Christ alone, our present and our future are as sure as he is. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if that does not comfort you this morning, then I need to encourage you, take another look at the law of God and stop thinking higher of yourself than you ought. If you look to the law of God and you like what you see, then I'll remind you that you cannot possibly be really looking. Only Jesus Christ has kept the law perfectly. And only his perfect righteousness imputed to us can actually save us. Only his perfect righteousness can ever satisfy the just and holy demands of the law of Almighty God. And if you think that you measure up, then consider the fact that your attitude does violence to the idea of the necessity of Jesus Christ's substitutionary atonement on our behalf. That according to your so-called righteousness, Jesus, in fact, died in vain. Consider the implications of thinking that you are something when the word of God says that you are nothing. And consider yourself duly chastened. Jesus ends this prayer with this climactic closing, point, closing, pointing us to the sure foundation of the promises of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our future in the presence of our Lord is founded and rooted in his glorious gospel. Jesus says in verse 26, I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Jesus says, I have declared. The mighty call to the elect has gone forth. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been proclaimed from the very mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He says, all of you have heard the law and have seen your sin. All of you know what it is to be weary and heavy laden. All of you who long to be reconciled to the Father, come and find rest in me and in my work. It's only through Jesus that we can know the Father. All the promises of God are realized in him. Right? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king from the house of David who came and who reigns for eternity. He is the true promised seed of the woman who came to crush the head of the serpent. He is the promised seed of Abraham in whom and through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the promised Messiah who came and who set the prisoners free. The gospel has gone out. The good news that though we are dead in trespasses and sins, Jesus has come. And though he was blameless in the eyes of the law, he took its full penalty and he died for us in our place. He took the penalty earned by our sin and our transgression. And there is, of course, even more here to fill the people of God with joy and hope and that blessed assurance that we like to sing of. 
Jesus said that not only did he declare it, but that he would continue to declare it. The gospel will continue until every single one of those who belong to Jesus Christ have been called home. Jesus said that he not only declared the gospel, but we know that through his spirit he will continue to declare that he and he alone is the only way and truth and life. Not only did Jesus come and declare it, but he sent his spirit who shines forth as a great beam of light, illuminating Jesus Christ, revealing him in the word of God, calling the elect of God to faith in him and in him alone. Jesus calls the Spirit our helper. And through Him, the power of the gospel continues to change the cold, dead hearts of men until He comes again in glory. Beloved, the gospel forever changed the hearts of these disciples. As they were then led by the Spirit to write down these things, we now have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the Word of God as it has been revealed by Almighty God and passed on and handed to us. They were faithful to teach and to rebuke and to correct, to point the church of Jesus Christ away from themselves towards Jesus. And now here we are in our own day with the same glorious opportunity. We have all been called despite what we know ourselves to be. We've been called by grace alone. We know that we have been saved through faith alone, not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. It is the work of God in us for his glory. We have the revealed word of God given to us. What are we going to do with it? That's the question. Will we follow in the footsteps of these men who were so moved by the good news of the gospel of Jesus that they were not ashamed That they were ready, willing, and able to shout the glorious truth of Jesus Christ from the rooftops. Pointing the world to Jesus and his glorious finished work on our behalf. Will we too lead the world to know? Shining forth as cracked pots, as broken vessels radiating the glorious light of Jesus Christ amid so much darkness. Please understand that this is but the message of the that the message of the gospel itself is the thing that's powerful. You do not have to be a great communicator. You do not have to be able to wax eloquent and impress the world with your silver tongue. You only must be so convinced of the truth that you simply cannot keep yourself from telling it. It is the message of the gospel itself that is powerful. And he calls us to point others to Jesus and to trust that it takes the Spirit of God to take hearts of stone and make them into hearts of flesh. Rest in the fact that all of the work in your salvation was done for you by Jesus Christ. Even the faith that allows for you to embrace the truth of Jesus itself. It was a gift. Point others towards him. And that gift. And as you rest knowing that your eternity is secure because of him. Be filled with wonder and joy 
as you consider what it will be like when we get to behold him in his radiant and full glory. When we will worship him unimpeded by this sinful flesh, fully preserved, fully sanctified, perfectly unified as the glorious bride of Jesus Christ, as we bow at the great throne of our bridegroom, cry out in unison glory to the Lamb of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, know that your life is not spent on this side of that glory, on this earthly pilgrimage through this veil of tears where we know all too well the reality of suffering and the effects of the fall. Know that this life does not have to be spent striving to get into heaven. Rather, we are called to trust in the perfect words of our glorious Savior, even as he prayed we would here in this prayer for us to his Father. We can go through this life rejoicing in the midst of all of our struggle and all of our pain, resting that truly the work is finished that you and I have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, that our salvation is sure, and the reward of our future in the glory of heaven, where we will be with Jesus in the fullness of his glory, is not something that we have to hope to one day see. It's not a reward that we strive for reaching out towards, but it is a reality that is as sure as the foundation of truth himself. We have the prayer of the second person of the Godhead, the very word of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, telling us that it is so. Recognition within the glorious Godhead that this truly is our inheritance, that you and I are heirs because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ that our inheritance is his due. And beloved, it's too high for us. It's too wonderful for us. And yet I trust that what we can see is enough to give us very real rest, to comfort us on our way and make us long for the day when we get to be with him where he is in glory. Happy is the man that rejoices knowing that he is being conformed into the image of his master while he lives so that he goes to be a companion with his master when he dies. Amen? Let's pray.